while you're turning, go ahead and go open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now I'm going to read some words to you, and I want to see if you can remember and say, say back to me what the next verse is. So we'll probably identify an age gap with this, but I'm okay with that. All right? So here's what we're going to say. I'm going I'm to say, say a sentence, and I want you to reply with me what that reply should be. Is everybody ready? Thinking caps, whatever it is you need to be able to know this. Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Anybody? Heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. There's only one person here that knows Belinda Carlisle. Anybody else in here love 80s music? Which equals 80s music. So I'm just going to change the whole sermon title then because no one remembers that song. Now you're all humming it. But that's, that's kind of the... Yeah, like, mm, 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 mm. There we go. It's okay to sing that song in a church building. <laughs> it's funny. I actually remember talking with a guy. I was working at a college for a while, and I was uh, very militant and legalistic and, and much bigger jerk than I am now. And the, I was talking to him about this song that he was listening to, and I, and I, and I didn't like the song because... At the time, I had come out of not listening to that specific song because it was very sexual. And I talked to him. I said, you know, how do you, how do you justify being able to listen to that? He's like, Joe, I've been married for 10 years. This is exactly what I think of my wife. And I stopped for a second. I said, oh, man, that's, that's really good, but I don't like that you were right. How do I respond to this one? <laughs> it had nothing to do with the sermon. It was just funny about picking when to sing songs. But the, the, subject, the topic for this morning's teaching is, and we're obviously in the series, How to Play Church, and the title is actually a question, Heaven is a Place on Earth? That's the question that I want us to think about, I want us to, to process for this morning. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing a letter to a group of people that are, there's a tremendous amount of money. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity. They don't have the, the limits that they would in a traditional colony for the Romans. It, it was, a, it was a, a seaport, and, and you would have to go through there. And so they had money going through there all the time. They had religious systems that were driving in money. They had every type of sin you could ever imagine available. And you didn't have to worry about consequences because when you got done with your little work that you were doing and you sold all the goods, you hopped in your boat and you left. And you never remembered the place outside of, hey, remember that night that we got hammered in Corinth? And that's about as far as you could go. It was a very affluent place. It was a place where it was very easy to live life. It was very comfortable to live life. I know that in America we can't really understand that these days because it's so difficult for us. Some of us wonder, you know, what we're going to eat or if we're going to eat every day. And I'm going to bite my tongue if I keep talking with it that firm into my cheek here. So Paul begins to narrow his focus some as he gets into chapter 4, verse 6 here. 
And I want to read a couple verses and then we'll, we'll jump into this morning. But verse 6 of chapter 4 starts with this. Now these things, and contextually you've got all of the, the status of servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries, uh, not playing this rating and popularity game. And then the next things that are in there, grammatically, which we'll go through in a minute. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Meaning, I want you to understand that I, all these things, I'm doing them too. And realistically, godly leadership doesn't hold other people to a different account. Godly leadership. We all have managers who do break all the rules, but we get in trouble for breaking the same ones. We have friends of ours. We've been involved in churches where the pastor was the worst sinner. The leaders that were there were the ones that you were picking up because they were you know, wasted after a party or whatever, and then they show up at the church, and it's, amen, God bless you, brother. And you're wondering, wait a second, I thought you said we would, shouldn't be out doing all these things, but yet that's where your life is. So Paul says, listen, all of this I'm holding against myself too as far as a standard that I live by in my life. That you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up, and you can put around that puffed up, prideful or arrogant on behalf of one against the other. That whatever way that you're choosing to, t- to live your life trying to compete because well, I-, I have this and so that makes me better than you. I have this ability, so that makes me better than you. And I think what Paul's trying to get across here in this first point for this morning is that when we play church, we, or should I say the the temptation is that we play church when we define our value, our worth based on man's systems. When we decide, like Paul says here, that, that you're, you're puffed up, you're arrogant, you're prideful on behalf of one against the other. I have positioned myself socially or, or intelligently or skill-wise better than the other person. And some of us may say, yeah, that's not my problem. I pretty much think I'm lower than everyone else. I, I think I'm the worst or whatever. That's the same problem because you're still looking at man's system. That's the same problem. It isn't just the arrogant person that makes you sick around them. It's the arrogant person that's constantly depressed and nothing's ever right and they think they're less than everyone else. That's arrogant too. That's changing God's standard. When God said at the cross, everyone is equal, you're all 100% valuable to me, and you all have the same way to heaven through me. And the value was determined. Done. It was over. And so Paul is listing off here. He says, I want you guys to realize that I, as a leader, I'm not playing the pastor comparison game. You guys, as people who are serving, you're not playing the pastor comparison game, the leader comparison game. I use this version. You use that version. Well, this church, we do this version. And this church, we don't do this version. Or whatever it is. Paul says, that's a complete waste of time. And I want us to realize something this morning that when Christ differentiates us and he, he separates us in between where our value is and not, it's not our perceptions or our standards that differentiate us. But just because someone has a different height or a different accent or, or a different gifting or a different strength, that doesn't determine what differentiates us. Now, that's hard to think about because our entire human system is built on that. It's built on that. Some of us would say that that the stage differentiates me and you. It doesn't. Only Christ determines how we're different. 
and I'm going to go a little bit more into that, where you're sitting in these rows makes you different from the other is not true. Where you've parked, what car you have driven, what money you have, what money you don't have, what abilities you have, what abilities you don't have, do not differentiate you. You may be different than somebody else, but that isn't what sets you apart. There's only one thing that separates Jesus. That's it. That's why with, with Christianity, it's not a matter of trying to determine, are you my type of denomination, or do you read my type of the Bible, or, oh, that church uses this Bible here, or did you hear he quoted from the message the other day? It's Jesus or not. It's not, well, we need to, we need to make them so that they're more moral, and then they can come and, and, and be a Christian. No, morality can't happen without Christ. Morality makes no sense without Christ. I've told plenty of friends of mine that are atheists, why are you wasting your time on morals? You're a bad atheist. Go for it. Eat up life. You don't answer to anybody. Our perceptions and our standards aren't what separate us. You're short, I'm tall, whatever the situation may be. And it's important for us to remember, what have you done with Jesus if you follow Christ, answer that for today. And then tomorrow morning when you get up, answer the same question. That's the only thing that sets us apart. Because that's the eternal picture. The eternal picture says, are you in the kingdom of our creator or not? Done. It sure makes things a lot simpler in the body. It makes it a lot simpler. And in fact, it then requires us to be unconditional in our love, maybe Agape, it changes the whole picture. So verse 7, often quoted verses. Some of us have heard this before. Some of us haven't. If you haven't, hey, check out verse 7. Let's read it together. For what makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why you glory as if you had not received it? Don't you love that question? No, we don't, because we're all busted with that question. We all are. If you received a gift, how could you be better because of that gift? Here, we're going to test that this morning. If you, in your seat right now, reach underneath your seat. If you have a pink sticky note, just reach down there. Maybe it fell on the floor. Maybe it's underneath your seat. If it's not in your seat, pick a seat next to you if it's empty. If you're in a row where it's empty, any pink sticky notes, stick them up in the air if you've got one. All right? We only got one found, two found, three found. All right, raise it up in the air. We got an usher. We're going to give you a gift. We're going to give you a gift. Now, what did you do to earn that gift? Nothing, because you didn't put the sticky note there. Take the gift. Somebody put the sticky note there. Here, we got one over here. One over here. Start digging around for sticky notes. We got way more out there. And I got a whole bunch of things to give away. Keep digging. So, here's what I want us to challenge with. Here's what I want to challenge us all with. Did you create your gifts and abilities? Did you create them? I'm not saying make them a little bit stronger, a little bit faster, a little bit whatever. Did you create them? No. No, you didn't. So, if you have an ability of some sort, a gift of some sort... Can we ever brag about it? No. But here's what we're going to do, just for fun. 
If you got a calendar, I want you to look at the person next to you and say with the most serious face you can, check underneath your seat, see if there's a sticky note. You have a prize. Say with the most serious face, I'm better than you because I got a calendar. <laughs> Come on, say it. Let's hear it. Come on. Look at the person next to you. I'm better because I got a calendar. Well, you guys. But you're, but you're not. Why, why are you laughing? Because you know it's not true. You don't even want a calendar. Use one on your phone and the paper thing confuses you. Whatever. Maybe you're the opposite. But you didn't create your gifts and abilities, right? You didn't create those abilities. You didn't come in and after you cut down a tree, form and press the sticky note and make it sticky on the back and put it underneath your chair. You didn't then go and print the calendar and then tell me, you know, make sure you sit in this certain chair or these certain things, did you? No. No, there was nothing in your life that you did that makes you better or, or different because of that calendar. It's just simply how it is. You got a calendar. Awesome. Enjoy it. If you want a calendar, we got a ton more. Grab one on the way out. Without a sticky note. You don't need to have a sticky note. And I remember listening to my boys having that testosterone battle between all four of them. And, and I remember my youngest daughter talking about how, you know, well, or my, my, my sons were talking about, oh, you know, we're, we can do this now, and, and we like it when mom does this, but we don't need mom for this anymore, and all this different stuff. And I remember my youngest daughter looking and getting so frustrated and saying, you need mommy. You can't born yourself. <laughs> That's kind of true. That's kind of true. We can't born ourselves. None of us, none of us, as soon as we popped out of the womb and said, hey, thanks for hanging on to me for a while. That was hard to pick the right one. We never said that. We didn't even have a choice into coming into this world. So there's so much in our life that we, we simply will, will take far too much pride in. And I'm talking arrogance on one side or the other. I'm ugly. Well, I'm beautiful. It stinks to be you. Whatever it is. Both of those are prideful statements because if God says that we're beautiful based on his measurements, guess what we are? Beautiful. Done. He said it. And it doesn't matter what everything else or everyone else says. And I want us to realize something, that when we, we, we play church, when we look at life, and we look down on others because they don't have what we have. And that may not be a problem for some of us in here when I say it this way, but let me give a great example. Alaskans. You haven't lived here as long as I do, so... I'm not going to talk to you the same. I'm not going to treat you the same. I'm not going to act the same. Once you figure it out after a few years, then you're worth my time and investment. We've never done that before, though, right? Yeah. We look down on others because they don't have what we have. What we have to realize is that what we have was a gift. It was a gift. That's why I jokingly had us look at each other. And you couldn't even have a straight face going, I'm better because I have a calendar. Ooh, <laughs> fine, you can be better if that's how you're going to measure yourself. But it's just as silly when we say, I had no choice to be born here, but I'm better than you because of that because you weren't born here. Come on. That's not true. Not true at all. It's a purely subjective discussion, and all it does is seek to divide and cut each other up and abandon people who need help and, and, and relationships and so on. 
Our gifts are not personal accomplishments. They're gifts. And it's amazing. At Christmas morning, all the kids have opened their gifts. You might have a pity party because one of the kids goes, well, it's not fair. He got one of those or she got one of those. You might have whining, which is another form of pride. But you never have someone walking around for very long and having a justifiable stance that says, well, because I got the bigger radio, I'm better than you. Actually, yes, we do. That's exactly what happens. That's what we do. The gifts in our life end up becoming things that we use to measure our value and others' values. Now, the Corinthians will go into this all throughout this whole book. Spiritual gifts, physical gifts, everything. They had a big problem with pride related to gifts in all arenas. So do we. That's why this fits very well for us today. But let's keep reading. Verse 8. I'm going to read through a whole section that's a little bit difficult to read for certain people. And it's a lot of translators struggle with what the tone is here. Some translators have said, well, you know, I think Paul is being facetious. Some translators say Paul is being cutting and trying to help them realize where they're at. And I just simply want to read it and tell you what Paul says, and then we'll go into some ways we can apply it. So verse 8, he says, you are already full. You're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Even to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure it, being defamed, we entreat, or we exhort, we've been made the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things. I love another translation that says, we basically are the scum of the earth, the slime on things that are rotting. Now, you get to the end of that, and you got to wonder, what is he trying to say? I can share a couple of things for us to consider. Because I think Paul is trying to expose some things that are difficult to communicate at times, and that we forget. We forget. And I want us to realize this point here, that we play church when we forget the difficulties of ministry and think the pastor just works on Sunday. Now, that might be kind of funny to say, but it's also been said to me and other pastors. I remember talking with some pastors at a pastor's conference, and every single one of them had this comment at least once that year. Like, I don't understand why he's always talking about how he's tired. He only works on Sunday. Yeah, because messages just show up in the bathroom after my constitutional on Sunday morning. And there's no marriage problems or parenting problems or community problems or anything going on during the week, just hanging out in the hammock. And it's kind of funny, and, and we talk about it, and, but we forget that all around this valley there are pastors and churches and ministry leaders that are really struggling. But as Paul said here, he says, listen, in the midst of all of this, we still have a job. 
we bless others even though we're cursed. In the midst of all of this, when everything is going terrible, when we're having people coming against us in all different ways, we encourage. Why? Well, because pastors are better. I mean, it's clear, isn't it? We said the past few chapters. No. So what he's trying to draw is a picture that doesn't feel very comfortable when we get to verse 14. And he says, I do not write these things to shame you. I'm not wanting to put guilt on you because of what you've heard here. And I've said this in in numerous counseling and conversations. They don't allow guilt to come in. Guilt accomplishes nothing. Nothing. It doesn't provide action. It provides rot. Guilt does nothing. It's taking action based on changes and, and growth in our life that we need to learn. He says, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, 10,000 people who want to tell you how to be a Christian, yet you do not have many fathers, people who see you as accountable and hold themselves accountable to your health and growth. There's plenty of people out there that will write a book and and create a podcast and and, and give you something that will make you feel good or, or, or tweak your emotion in some way. But do you have someone in your life that genuinely cares about you and your walk? And they can look you in the face and say, hey, you're a doofus today. Hey, that was not right. Hey, that was awesome. Keep going, whatever it is. And that's where Paul's getting at here. You can have all these people going, hey, follow Christ this way. Hey, go this way. If you give this much money and you you buy this shawl and you do these things, then hey, you're going to be a Christian. Then he says, verse 16, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Now, what is he asking us to imitate? In any other literary work, we would just simply go back and listen to what he said about how his life is. And we would say, that's what imitation means. Now, unfortunately, churchianity has said something different. What we translate that verse as, and many of us may even see this in our life, is just act more like a Christian. No. That's not what he says here. He doesn't say act more like a Christian. In fact, he says act more like Christ, which unfortunately are very different things most of the time. He says, imitate me. So when we think of that, that imitation, first off, he, I think he's bringing to a reminder for us another way that we play church. And it's this, that we forget and we're not warring alongside our ministry leaders in prayer and in service. He's wanting to, to have us imitate, not making life terrible. He's wanting us to remember that playing church is just acting like everything's just fine and assuming, because it's uncomfortable otherwise, that everybody's just fine. Because if we don't, then we have to care. And that gets awkward because people hug and touch and their faces get wet. But that's our job. is to be alongside ministry leaders in prayer. And I'm not, and I, I didn't say the word pastor there because I didn't want this to feel self-serving with two points in a row, but it's any ministry leader. Anybody that's here, anybody that you've ever talked with, other ministries that you, you support or you're involved with, how often do they receive prayer for what's happening, what's going on? It's important. And I want us to remember the next point here. We play church when we forget that it takes every part of the body to do life right. Every part. 
Can you imagine going for a hike and the legs decided, I'm not doing that. I don't like that trail. That would be somewhat funny to watch. Or if the eye decided, you know what? I don't want to look forward. I want to look backward. I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I, I, don't, I don't want to listen today, said the ears. And so the bear eats the guy as he's walking because he didn't hear anything happening. Our bodies work together to accomplish what we do every single day. And that's why this picture of a body is used in the church, is that we can't sit here and say, listen, you don't understand, feet, I'm a hand. We have to have the feet, because guess what? When you've got to go to the bathroom, you need the feet to take you there. We have needs of every part of the body. And included in that, in the body, in this, even though this room here doesn't have thousands of people, there are people here, whether I know personally or not, that have a tremendous amount of pain and excitement today. Someone could have come in, and I'll just go through a list of things that are on my mind. Uh, losing a family member, struggling in marriage, struggling with a child, job, money, purpose. Could be something even more simple. Health problem, whatever it is. But we don't know it. If we look at the body as if we have to work together to do this life right, we're going to care. Hey, you know what? That ankle is messed up right now. Leg, let's do a little bit of extra work here to make sure that that ankle is okay. That's what the body does. That's what our body does. That's why we limp, to help other things heal, to help things take care of themselves. And it's important as Paul's going through, talking about these areas in the body, talking about these things, he wants us to be on mission. He wants us to be a part of doing all that he's asked us to be. And when he says, I want you to imitate me, I want us to realize something. Imitators does not mean make your life terrible. That's not what it means. Christianity is not defined because life is terrible. There's movements all over throughout time. There's a stoic movement that even is still alive today that if life is terrible, therefore you are more and more holy. And there's self-abuse and self-mutilation and so on that goes on. Being imitators is not coming over here and going, okay, how do we imitate him? I need to be poor. I need to be hungry. I need to be condemned. I need to be a fool. I need to not have any clothes. I need to be made fun of. No. Because those are things that Paul didn't have a choice in, so we can't imitate him where he wasn't included in a choice. What is a choice is his response in these cases. So let's look at this. His response is what? You're going to have to deal with weakness. You're going to have to deal with dishonor. You're going to have to deal with hunger and thirst. And what is the response here? Verse 12, blessing, even though it's terrible and they're making fun of you. Enduring, even though it's persecution. Exhorting and encouraging, even though they're crushing your image in front of other people. It's important for us to remember that when he talks about imitation, he says, stop being prideful 
and I or me oriented. Seek the goals that God has. When he says imitate me, it isn't act more like a Christian. It's act more like Christ in response to these troubles, in response to these problems that are going on. Uh, and and let, me just, let me just make it clear. Every single one of these things he's talking about going through, I do believe, and I do know that there's record of him going through that. But I'm also not minimizing those things. I haven't been through some of the things that you guys have been through or are going through right now. <laughs> I honestly don't even know that I would ever want to go through some of the things some of you have gone through. But I'm here to tell you that our response is the only thing we have control of while life spins around us. A response to that. And that's where Paul is saying that. He's not asking us to do the impossible. He's asking us to do the possible. It's to imitate him and his response to life. And I want us to realize that the opposite of that, that Paul is exposing when he talks about, hey, you guys are reigning as kings. You guys are full. You guys are rich. You're being honored. You're being distinguished. You want for nothing. I think there's a bit of a jab here from Paul. I think one of the things that he's challenging us, and it goes back to the title of the teaching, we play church when we try to make heaven on earth. Now think about that. What does that mean? When we try to make heaven on earth. Well, there's promises of heaven. There's promises of what it's going to be like to be with God in eternity. And we try and do that here. Here's a couple of examples. Could be comfort. One of the things that the church is unfortunately very good at is creating an exclusive club. And in fact, call it a holy huddle, call it a, uh, a sterile group of, of people or whatever it is. But, but that's what eternity is, is that a place ruled only by God and good. We can't do that here on earth. We can't expect that a church or a building or a group of people or Christians is the only place we hang out. There are many churches, maybe you have visited them or been part of them before, that are very family-feeling, and it feels so comfortable to be there. But I challenge to ask the people, to ask the pastor, what is your stance on the Great Commission? In your life at this church or this fellowship, how many salvations have you seen How many times have you been able to pray with someone? How many friends have been invited? How many people have brought their family members who don't know Christ who aren't engaged with those things? So our job as a Christian church is not to create the most closed club we can so we feel comfortable and everything's Christianed up in here. I'm getting nauseous just thinking about it. Jesus created the family. It's not our job. It's his. So when he joins us together, it's our job to work together, not try and find ways to keep people out so we stay comfortable. And so you'll notice certain things. I'm not saying that those churches are bad because of that. I'm not saying that we're bad if we have uh, some kind of fellowship that happens or, or something together. But you will notice any type of activity that we want to do here, I am strongly convicted based on Scripture and the vision that God gives us is that every single activity shows us reaching, growing, and sending. 
I don't see any reason at all to create a closed group where it's only Christians invited. That's what heaven is. We've got that promise. Why are we trying to make it here? If you ever present an event for the church, that's my first questions. This is awesome. I love the idea. So how is someone going to feel comfortable inviting someone who's unsaved? Well, I mean, that's not really what it's going to be about. Then it's not matured yet. You might have a great vision. You might have a great idea. But it's not mature until the Great Commission is folded in, even in a small way. You have to be careful that we don't try and create heaven on earth. So I want to give us a quiz to think about. Am I trying to create heaven on earth? Here's a quiz for us to ask ourselves, whether today or, or in the next few days or every week or month, you use this to kind of quiz yourself, whatever it is. Here's the first question that I, I would challenge us to ask. Am I seeking to be holy or happy? They don't equal each other. They don't. Am I seeking to be holy or happy? It's not an easy question to answer. Some of us are driven, whether it's in our parenting or our marriages or our friendships, to drive towards happiness. Why? Because happy is comfortable. People are smiling. There's no awkward emotions. And actually, I don't have to care because I'm happy. But I'll challenge you, the most powerful marriages, the longest-lasting, powerful Christian children, and the The friendships that last a lifetime are the ones that seek holiness instead of happiness first. Married couples, seek the holiness of your spouse, not their happiness. Parents, stop trying to make your kids happy. Seek holiness. The goal is not to be good at a certain sport or at a certain way that they speak or act but that that you would be content, and this is a challenge. This is a challenge God brought me to. Would I be content that if my child's life was simply to be one mission trip where he smuggled Bibles in somewhere and got killed doing it, is that a a life that was worth it? And I will tell you it is. Because the other choice could have been going up in the NBA, going off and doing some sort of set of activities that were happier But someone who held the keys to life and death in their heart through the name of Jesus never said it one time. That's not our goal as Christians. It's not. To walk around and hide it in a box going, I've got the truth. And if you want me, you'll have to beat me up to get me to say something about it. Trust me, Joe, I would die for Christ. Would you live? Would you live for Christ? A lot of us would be willing to die for something. Take a bullet for my family. What about not taking one? What about choosing to live a different life? We seek that happiness or holiness. One of the things I remember talking years ago with a guy, and he had two jobs in front of him. We were sitting in his office, and he said, Joe, I'm really struggling. I said, okay, well, put it in front of you. What are you thinking? He said, well, I can stay right where I'm at. I've got a little promotion, and um, I can stay right where I'm at. They're, they're kind of motivated to keep me. He said, but I've got this other job. I said, okay, what does it mean? He goes, I probably have to travel like 50% of the time. I said, all right. What, what else? He said, Joe, they're almost doubling my salary for it. And I said, okay. So what are your priorities? What's your goal? What's your drive? Are you looking for happy or holy? 
What about your marriage? What about your family? All those different decisions. And I remember sitting in his office, and I said, what are you willing to give up for these two things? Because the first job says, I'm willing to give up the attention and, 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 and the money and, and all these other different things to have the, the things that are around me, whether it's family or ministry or relationships and so on. The other choice, unfortunately, this was in our discussion. We actually wrote it out. The other choice, unfortunately, is I'm willing to give up my wife, my kids, my relationship with my brothers in Christ, my relationship with the guys that I was mentoring and so on. And, and as we just took it to its logical end, we realized that the decision actually wasn't that hard, that the comfort from additional money caused far more problems in the future as he just played it out. Now, I'm not saying that's the exact decision for every single person because there are seasons in life, there are struggles that we go to, there are times where we are going to be completely separated from those we love for seasons, for periods of time. And I'm not minimizing or, or bad-mouthing any of those things. What I'm saying is that when we seek happy, comfort, and not holy, which is eternally lasting, we miss what God really wants for us. We miss what God really wants for us. And sometimes, in our walk as Christians, sometimes we have to make this decision to say, I would rather have this lesser because of the greater thing that God's going to do. And it's better. It's better in that way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 said what? But put God's kingdom first. What is God's kingdom? He lists off how his kingdom operates. Him first, spouse second, children third, everything else bottom. That's how his kingdom operates. He says, put that first. Put that structure there. Do what he wants you to do. Then all these things will be given to you. What are all those things? He was talking about money and food and fame and all these other different things. Listen, I'll quote Francis Chan here. Why, when the Bible says it, we say, I can remember that, but we don't do it. I can't answer it because I make the same dumb decisions. I get caught up in happiness making my decision and not holiness. Am I separating my life and my family and, and, and my marriage and the things that God has in front of me right now for more comfort? It's not an easy decision every day. And some of us, we struggle with that. We struggle with it, you know, well, God, Joe, trust me, I know how to make myself suffer. I can sit there and never buy anything ever again because I know that Jesus is happier. That's not what I said. What did I say? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Put God's kingdom first. Do what he wants you to do. What if I don't hear anything that he wants me to do? Then enjoy the Big Mac. <laughs> Unless he said, don't eat that Big Mac. But seek for what he would have in all of that. Next, number two. How do I know that I'm... How do I know that I've forgotten what it is that God wants me to do. How do I know that I'm trying to make heaven on earth? Here's number two on that. When things don't happen how I want or thought, do I lose my purpose in my drive? Now, here's the thing. You're all human as far as I know, and the answer is going to be yes. It's very hard. That when we have a way that we want something to happen, we have something that we thought, well, God, I thought it was going to be this way. We have two choices. But you show me where to go, so I'm going to follow, is one choice. 
The other one includes laying and kicking and screaming. And we do that. Well, God, no, God, you told me this. Uh, You heard that. I'm a firm believer that God will say just about anything to get us brats moving towards his purpose. And if he says, yeah, Joe, go up to Alaska. It's going to be beautiful, and there's a, a, a church you're going to be part of and, and, and part of, and, you know, suckers us into it almost. I'm not saying God's lying, but I'm saying that sometimes he will have to paint a picture that we just assume that's how God always operates. He is eternal, almighty, all-knowing, created everything around us. I don't think we understand him. Just a wild guess. And so, yeah, sometimes in life, you're going to turn a corner and go, whoa, that was not supposed to be there. And we have to ask God, what do we do? We have to go to Him and do what He says to do, Matthew 6, 33. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we'll get into this later on as we continue studying here. But he says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect Clarity, then he's talking about our future and eternity with Jesus. All that I know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. Now, I'm looking forward to that. I'm tired of being clueless and stupid. (laughs) No one said amen. Thank you. (laughs) We are too. But can we really say that and believe that? All that I know now is partial and incomplete. Do you realize that would fix friendships, marriages, ministries? It would fix so much if we just admitted, you know what? I don't think I know everything. It would change so much in our life. It would change so much. Number three, how are we trying to make heaven on earth? If life is difficult... Do I assume that something is wrong? Think of that. Things got hard. I must be doing it wrong. Now, if you're lifting weights, is that a good indicator? No. Wrong! It should be hard. That means you're doing it right. If you're, if you're masochistic, then you know it's right because life is terrible. Got a, I've got a son like that. If it's terrible, he's smiling. Yeah, I know I'm doing it right. Can't move anything below my neck, so it must be right. <laughs> no, you're paralyzed. No, the opposite is true. In fact, I love what it says in Acts chapter 5. The apostles were what? Full of joy as they left the Sanhedrin. Okay, at this time in history... Those don't go together, okay? The Jewish leadership was, was literally out to kill and destroy. You read Acts. They're the most annoying little snots all over that area. Paul will be preaching, and then what does it say? And then Jews showed up and started inciting a riot. And then a few chapters later, and then Jews showed up and started inciting a riot. So the apostles left the Jewish leadership, and they were full of joy. Doesn't make sense. They considered it an honor. Awesome. They got a prize to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. To suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Do, do we look at our day and go, man, I hope someone punches me in the mouth for saying amen today. 
When I say Jesus, I hope they yell crucify him. I want to be just like Jesus. None of us have ever said that. If you do say that, you're strange. What I'm saying is that our hearts, are we okay? What is it that we see as success in life? Is it, whew, no problems today. That means it was a good day. No, that means we didn't seek out what God wanted sometimes. We had family prayer time many years ago with our little guys that just had boys at the time. And as we're going around the circle praying, all the prayer requests were, uh, please pray that tomorrow will go smoothly. And I just stopped and I said, guys, I don't want to pray that anymore. And of course, they're like, well, why wouldn't you want that, Dad? It's not that I don't want smoothness. What I really want is for us to be okay if God makes it not smooth. And I'm not saying I like the outcome of that one. But just because the day wasn't smooth doesn't mean God wasn't in it. We just have to seek him no matter what the road looks like. Whether it's super smooth asphalt and it's a wonderful cruising ride. Or it's springtime in Alaska and we're getting lost and small children and dogs are disappearing into potholes. Are we okay with that? Well, Joe, I don't know if I could ever deal with my whole life being potholes. What do we want, his kingdom or ours? That's not an easy decision. But that's where Paul is saying, imitate me. Stop looking at the situation and just obey him. They're making fun of you. Then find a way to encourage them back. That doesn't make sense. Not at all. It's tempting to think that life is difficult and therefore something must be wrong. Don't ever associate difficulty does not equal God's path. In fact, it would be safer to associate the opposite because he says, in this world, you will, I guarantee you will have trouble. Not rainbows and unicorns and lollipops. Trouble. And you know what we, none of us did just then? Woo-hoo. Why? Because it stinks. Life is very difficult sometimes. Some of you are thinking things right now that I can never even imagine having to process in my brain. I don't ever want to. But don't think for a second that because life has gotten difficult, God has left you. Sometimes when things get really difficult, it's because life was too loud for us to hear what he was trying to say. So realize that. Listen to what he has to say. Number four, am I trying to make heaven on earth? Am I so wrapped up in the day-to-day that I forgot the mission? Am I so wrapped up in the day-to-day that I forgot the mission? See, I think we need to realize something. The mission isn't over. We just got to marching for a while, and, and, and we haven't run into an enemy that we think, or at least the enemy has become to look a lot like us, and we've forgotten the mission. And I've asked this question before. I struggle asking it of myself, but every morning... Can you write out in your journal, God, you gave me 24 hours of time. You gave me these certain talents and these certain possessions. How did the gospel get farther because of that yesterday? It's a great question to ask. And sometimes you might say, I don't know. That's fine because you can't go back and change the past. But what we can do is say, I don't know, but I want something today. I want something today. And it may be days. It may be years until you write down in there. This is amazing. 
But I got a chance to pray with someone to come back to Christ today. I got a chance to talk with someone about Jesus today, whatever it is. But if that's our goal and our intent, rather than getting caught up in the noise of every single day, and this time of year, everybody is manic. We've got more sunlight than anybody else in the entire U.S., and we are eating it up, and it's easy to forget how much we thought we needed God a few months ago when it just was never going to get light and warm again. (laughs) Guys, the same darkness that exposed our weaknesses and our problems is going to be back, and if we don't deal with it during the bright, it'll be back in the dark. Don't get caught up in the day-to-days. I have to remind myself this. We forget the mission. Deuteronomy chapter 4, way back in the beginning of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says this. He says, so stay alert. Don't for a minute forget the covenant which God, your God, made with you. And here's what's interesting. We don't usually associate these things, but do you know that trying to create heaven on earth equals idolatry? Because idolatry is trying to take a physical thing and force the spiritual world to interact with you through it. He says here, and don't take up with any carved images. Don't try and create heaven on earth. Don't try and create the spiritual world to do your bidding here on earth. Don't forget for a minute the covenant. Because the second we take our eye off the enemy, the second we take our eye off that prize, we veer off from where he wants us. And I'm not saying that from a judgmental perspective. I'm saying that you are gifted, you are talented, you have a call and a mission that God has for you in your life, and he's got amazing things for you to be doing for him. If you had a gift of carpentry, being told that you would just be sitting in a chair doing nothing is depressing. But being told that, hey, we've got all these people that can't finish their houses, and you're a finished carpenter, and you've got everything, and all your materials are provided, everything's ready to go. All you have to do is show up and say, how do you need me? That's exciting. Guys, God said he wants humans to push the mission forward. He says you've got to be breathing, and you've got to have him inside you. And when you go before the leaders, I will give you the words to say, he says. When you go out into life, I will remind you the things that I have taught you. Not to wonder and go, I don't know what to say. What if they ask me a question I don't know an answer to? Remember what do we say? I don't know. Because I know what all Christians are irritating. Let's finish. Verse 17. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Some now are puffed up or arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I'll come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power, the substance. Are they really that tough? For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod, disciplining, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Do you want me to show up and you guys are picking a fight? Or do you want me to show up and you go, ah, yeah, we were listening to, to the wisdom you gave us and we're different? It's very tempting. As he's looking at this, we were watching a show and, and I remembered an album by a a great evangelistic band, and, and the title of the album was Memento Mori, Remember You Will Die in Latin. And I think that's a good reminder for all of us to look at with our lives and the people around us. 
There's no guarantee we will sit next to these same people next week. None at all. There's no guarantee that the person we're standing at in line in the grocery store, we will see again. There's no guarantee that the person that God had walk right near us is going to be continue walking in an hour, whatever it is. And if we remember the mission, instead of trying to find a way to, to puff ourselves up and lift ourselves up, we've missed what he has for us. And in fact, we play church, and I think Paul's closing here in this section, we play church when we do not remember how we got to where we are. How we got to where we are. The abilities that each of us has in our life to speak or to act or to do certain activities, we weren't born with them. We grew in those skills and those talents and those abilities. Why? Because God gave us breath to do it each day. We play church when we sit and look and go, wow, look at, look at where we're at. Look at all these great things that have happened. God said, follow me, not go to the next chair and sit down. It was this whole motivation, whole goal in the gospel. The Great Commission is go, go, go. And I want to I challenge something kind of pulling off from trying to create heaven on earth is that we play church when churching takes the place of discipling. When attendance becomes what's valuable and not engagement. When in 1 John, when he says that you should be so amped about the work that God's doing that you want to invite those into the fellowship that you have with Jesus. And that fellowship is a specific fellowship of where you go and be filled up for what God has for you. But that other fellowship is just simply an evangelistic discussion, whatever it is. And the challenge I want to kind of pull us all is, in is sometimes there are good things that we do around the church building, and they're not Christian because anybody could do that. Anybody could. Without Jesus, whatever it is. But it's the mission of discipling that changes it from good works to faith being evidenced by good works. If we look at our service opportunities in the community or in this church as opportunities to disciple, to share the truth, however it is, whatever the situation would be, that God, while I'm scraping the gum off the floor, is there someone I could talk to? Is there someone I could be praying for? God, while I'm picking up the trash after the service is over, out in the parking lot, whatever it is, is there something I can be doing? Maybe ushering, maybe greeting, maybe going out and doing outreaches this summer. Maybe it's next door with some of the kids. Talk about a generation that needs discipling. Children's church is not children's church. It's discipling, just like here. They're not the next generation, the up and coming. They are here. The year zero through five is concrete. If we're not giving them concrete truths, then what is true? Whatever feels like being true. It's great opportunities all over the place. And then outside of this campus, in the workplaces, in the places that we go in the community, who is it that we're talking with? Well, they don't really go to the same church. I don't care. Are we talking about Jesus? 
Now, I'd love to have more people here because that would be more critical mass for what we want to do. Remember, Rise Chapel is a church that is planted so that we can plant more churches and be involved in spreading the gospel throughout this state. It's exciting to me. But we're not going to accomplish what God wants for us by churching, are we? No. It's going to happen through discipling, through mentoring, through actually walking people through Scripture, walking people through His Word. And then, here's what you do. As soon as you walk them through that and they can stand on their own, you go, here, there's someone over there. And they go to the next, and you go to the next. And it's, it's beyond exponential how the gospel and mentoring and discipling works. It never ends. It never ends. See, it's very easy in the Christian church today to get focused on the organization and not the mission. Now, there are organizational dynamics because of the IRS and all this other foolishness around us that makes things complex, but that doesn't change the fact that, unfortunately, last year we had to have a phone call with the IRS that you can't have an evangelistic discussion. What's the IRS, Joe? They don't need Jesus. You're right. What about the guy who drops off? We've got a uh, whole new IT equipment coming in here. During the week next week, he hasn't come to this church, not even a Christian. <laughs> he is stuck with me for hours. So is the cable guy that shows up at your house, the MTA guy that shows up at your house, the repairman. Guess what? He wants money. You want him to find Jesus. Boom. Sounds like a great relationship. Next time we go on an airplane flight, you're all stuck in that tin can. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. What do you do, run away? all these opportunities in front of us. Discipling starts with the first step. I want to follow and know Jesus. I don't know anything else, but I know I've got this pile of guilt and I can't do anything about it. I have tried my whole life. I have tried a life that's terrible and the guilt didn't go away. I tried a life that was completely numbing and the guilt didn't go away. I still come home every single night to this rucksack full of filth and there's nothing I can do. So what happens? What do we do? That's when discipling starts, when we share with them. Here, let me show you the way. And we share that truth. The jockeying and posturing and positioning that was going on in the Corinthian church is no different than today. You can close your Bibles, and and I'll close with some prayer here. And I want to do two things as closing. Number one, I want to do something that maybe it's happened before from a pastor you've talked with before. I don't know. But I want to offer something. On behalf of other Christians, whatever your experience has been in the church, in Christianity in general, I want to say something. Everybody look, I want to say something. I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry. that Because we as leaders and as Christians and the church, we messed up. We made churching more important than the people. We made the object the object instead of people the object. We made accomplishing whatever goals we want to do more important than the people that needed to hear the truth about Jesus. And I am sorry. I'm sorry that when you came into a church, maybe even this one, that we didn't ask you how you were doing and genuinely actually cared. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it was the the hands that should have been loving and hugging were the hands that were swinging. And I don't know how much that means, but I know that that is something that God put on my heart, that I wanted to apologize for the failures of the church. I have no defense at all. 
we've done some dumb things, but here, let me reverse that. When we do this life how God designed it to be done, it is beautiful. For those of you that have served in ministry, those of you that have been evangelizing and watched the Spirit of God move or disciple someone else and watched God move and seen a changed life, you know the good. You know when that holiness is happening versus happiness. You know that. You've seen that. And so I challenge us all. If that apology meant something, please accept it. But maybe for others of us, it's time to not worry about the comforts of this life, to not seek out one of the things that we desire of trying to be happy and and, and comfortable and, and, and filled with what I want, but more a matter of what does he want. Because it's very easy. This world, especially America, will offer us everything we could ever imagine. And just because it turns out how we want doesn't mean that that's what God wanted. Why do we ever tell Joe I'm so confused? Ask him every day. And there may be a life that's tremendously blessed, monetarily, physically, locationally, whatever it is. And it started with seeking him first. That's all that I ask. I don't have a problem with money. I don't have a problem with things. I don't have a problem with certain kinds of musics and cars and all that different stuff. The only thing I have a problem with is Jesus first in the decisions in your life and what you do with your time, your talents, and your possessions. That's the only thing I care about because that's the only thing that differentiates us in this world. That's it. So let's bow our heads this morning. Speaking of the only thing that differentiates us, while every eye is closed, heads are bowed. If that rucksack of filth is still hanging out, and you want that forgiveness, raise your hand this morning. I would love to pray with you. Amen. 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 time for that forgiveness. In fact, I'm just going to, I'm going to close this in prayer. And I want to challenge if, if that meant something, whether your hand was raised or not, if that meant something and you want to pray, I want to challenge you to come up and talk with me right afterwards. I don't care if it's 50 of you. I want to pray with you. But I'm going to close this in prayer because I think it's good for us to join together in this and just, God, I... <sighs> I ask that we would stop trying to seek what isn't meant to be right now. I don't ever want to lose the excitement over the future of being with you forever. But I don't want to look at the future so intently that I miss the today. Please forgive me, God. I pray, God, that we would imitate you that when the world comes against us, our Jesus gave us an example. And I pray that we would be loving and encouraging to those who may be the total opposite to us. I pray that we would be people that share that truth and that word without any fear, without any hesitation be used by you, God. And God, I pray that as we 
go about our week, that we would look at this week differently because of what it is that you've said and done, God. I pray that we would look at this life differently because you've said that it's, it's short. And there's so much going on. There's so much you've given to us. There's so much that you, you have for us to be doing. Help us not to set it aside. Help us not to get fearful. Help us not to get discouraged when life gets difficult, but to realize and sometimes even count it as exciting and joyful because, hey, we got to be like Jesus. Help us remember that, God. 